NVIDIA provides new guidance, and we've got a bull versus bear on Shopify. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Good to be here. Good to be here indeed. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Not a happy Monday so much for NVIDIA, because NVIDIA is scheduled to issue its next earnings report on August 24th. But this morning, the graphics chipmaker released preliminary earnings that show second quarter revenue is going to be, let's just call it 15 to 20 percent lower than they had previously guided for. And shares of NVIDIA are down about 8 percent. Yep, that's an attention getter. And uh, it is a risk that comes with a business like this when demand for a given sector slows down. Uh, we, we talk a lot about companies that have pulled forward a lot of growth over the past couple of years for, for obvious reasons. Nobody is immune. I think that NVIDIA certainly realized this to an extent as well, uh, because this this revenue shortfall, this adjust this adjustment downward, is really uh, primarily due to gaming uh, headwinds, right? And, and and they've been witnessing gaming tailwinds over the past couple of years as, as folks uh, spent a little bit more time inside and doing other things. Uh, well, now people are getting back out at it, and um, that that means that the gaming sector is normalizing a little bit. I, I, I look at this, and I mean, I understand the reaction. I mean, anytime you have a company that pre-announces like this with this type of adjustment downward, I mean, it is understandable that investors flee. I mean, I think as we speak right now, the stock is down around eight percent for the day. I would encourage folks though to look at this from a little bit of a longer term perspective. Shocker, I know we take the long view here, <laughs> but but bear with me. It is one of those things where you have to look at the market that it serves, right? I don't think this is a long term red flag, unless you subscribe to the notion that gaming itself is in secular decline. I don't subscribe to that notion. Maybe others do. I personally don't. So when I look at something like this, I mean, this is just again, growth was pulled forward. It's normalizing a little bit, but this isn't really an indicator of of, of more weakness within within the business. Now, yeah, it'd been nice if they could have seen around this corner a little bit, but I don't think it's something that really is indicative of a, of a greater problem within the business itself. I agree with that, including and especially the. It would have been great if they could have seen around the corner <laughs> about this, in part because this is not a miss by a penny on the revenue line kind of number. So I think that's a big part of why we're seeing the reaction that we're seeing in the stock. To the long term picture, I think part of what supports what you said is the comments from Colette Kress, who's the CFO at NVIDIA. She said the long-term picture that they have for gross margins is still intact. And look, she's a pro. She's been there nine years before that with Microsoft and Cisco Systems. So, yeah, it's hard to imagine the gaming industry is dramatically smaller five years from now as opposed to. Larger? No, I suspect it'll be larger. I mean, I think all signs point to that. I mean, and the good thing with a business like Nvidia is that it pursues multiple big market opportunities, right? So when you look at gaming revenue, for example, that's the second biggest driver for the business behind the data center, as 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 it pertains to this to this guidance and the revenue for the quarter. That gaming revenue is going to be down 44% sequentially and down 33% from the prior year. Now, the the good thing is, as I mentioned, these other markets, uh, you look at 
pro visualization. Now, that's going to be a little bit of a point of weakness as well. 20% decline sequentially and 4% uh, year over year. But when you look at data center revenue, which is the largest portion of the business, I mean, that's up 1% sequentially and it's going to be up 61% from the prior year. Automotive, another, another space that's really heating up for a lot of companies, um, NVIDIA notwithstanding here, is. is uh, is up 59% sequentially and 45% year over year. And so, you know, if you remember, it wasn't all that long ago when we were talking about NVIDIA, the big, the big topic of conversation was around crypto, right? I mean, it was all of this function functionality that their, that their hardware and software enables for the crypto space. And then you saw some weakness, you saw some questions, and we saw kind of the same thing more or less happen here. So, so it all just kind of speaks back to this idea that I think when you look at a business like Nvidia and something like this that happens, it, it, it's it's one part of the business, but it's not the whole business. And so, again, I mean, I think it's it's something that yeah, it's, it hurts it hurts for now, um, but given given the expertise in the business, given the number of market opportunities they're pursuing, and and then also just given the fact that that this this technology right chips. I mean, that's the lifeblood of everything that we do now. It's just non-negotiable. Uh, so I, th- I think that this is a business that's just going to play a very important role in in our lives and the development of our digital economy for many many years to come. Our email address is podcasts at fool.com. Got an email from Adrian in Germany who writes, "Longtime listener here. I'm in the process of adding to my winners and investing in some new companies that I've had on my watch list for some time now." But I just couldn't get myself to buy at the lofty valuations before the recent market pullback. With my portfolio growing in size, should I also consider selling some of my positions? Including my latest additions, I hold over 20 individual stocks. From here on, it will get increasingly difficult to stay up to date on all companies' developments and my thesis for each of them. I'm curious to hear your perspective on the optimal degree of concentration in a private portfolio. Thanks, and keep up the great work you do every day. Thank you for that, Adrian. Thank you for the kind comments and the question. I said to you when we were walking into the studio, this is a very self-aware person. This is, this is such a great question, because Adrian is so self-aware in terms of, I want to stay on top of my stocks, and I know there's a limit to my ability to do that. Yeah. So, in, in a sense, I feel like Adrian is Already answering the question there. I, yeah, I think to a degree. I mean, it is it is a it's a very good question with an answer that ultimately is going to depend on the individual, right? And, and um, I think that probably Adrian's probably a little bit early to this issue, and and that's that's a good thing. I think better early than late. And what I mean by that is. I feel like at twenty, a little bit more than twenty stocks in the portfolio, that that's pretty concentrated. I mean, that it, it you know, for most folks, we're recommending twenty five, thirty, somewhere, somewhere even even beyond that, to really feel like you know you can sleep well at night and not worry about too much concentration. So I do feel like there is there there is still some room to go in adding a few more. Uh, names and a few more businesses to that portfolio, but I do agree that, that that as you creep up past twenty, it becomes a lot more difficult to keep track of what's going on. And I will say, certainly, I mean, I've got, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty-two to thirty-four individual companies now in my portfolio, which I consider for me a lot. 
part of my problem is I just every once in a while spot a new business that I really just want to own, <laughs> and so I add a little bit. And and so I think you know part of it is is trying to remember uh, in the in the context of how many businesses you own. What are the allocations you have? Because some of those positions may be very small, and it could be okay to just say, you know what, I can just kind of let those go and just check in on on them every once in a while, and and, and I don't have to necessarily give it the same due attention. It's something that maintains a, a larger portion of that portfolio. So, so I do think taking into consideration the actual size of the position makes a difference there. Uh, I I think with selling, I mean, I, I don't know that I would sell just to be able to add a different company to the portfolio, particularly if it's a winner. I just don't I don't think that's really a good strategy. So so from there, we like to say water the flowers and pull the weeds. And so from time to time, look through the portfolio and find those underperformers where the thesis may be not working out or maybe the thesis is even broken. Uh, you can consider unloading those businesses, but I wouldn't sell just to make room to add a different name, a different business to the portfolio. Yeah, and one thing I'll add is I think you'll find over time that because you said something I was absolutely thinking, which is the whole, hey, look, sometimes it doesn't work out for a stock and it gets to be so small, it's like it doesn't matter. Yeah. This is, you know, it's it's less than one half of one percent of my portfolio, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time worrying it. At the other end of the spectrum, I think there's also the possibility for businesses that are so stable, even though they represent a larger part of your portfolio and it's, you know, Three percent, five percent, something like that. But they are so well run that you you don't need to spend a lot of time on them either. I think that's a terrific point. I'm glad you brought that up. And I can think of a couple of examples just right off the top of my head. My own portfolio. I look at something like an Under Armour. In in Under Armour, clearly years ago, a much different story than it is today. I I look at that and I think. Yeah, it's it's a broken thesis versus kind of where we we were looking at it years ago. Uh, but I, you know, I don't think it's a broken business per se. I think there's value there. But the position that I have in Under Armour is so small that it just doesn't matter. And so I keep it for a number of reasons. Number one, I just think at some point there's some value there that's going to be realized. But number two, it always it's it's kind of a good reminder to look at those little holdings and they you remember. Yeah, I, that that one. Things can change very quickly in investing, and so it's nice to have those examples in your portfolio to remind you of that because it's also very easy to forget that stuff. And and then on the other side, yeah, you have businesses that are just so staid, so stable, so reliable. Uh, I've got to call out McCormick here because it's just one that I've owned for years, and and I put it in that bucket, right? I just I don't need to get too in the weeds with it because they just deliver quarter after quarter. A pretty consistent experience, a pretty consistent earnings report. Every once in a while, they look to make an acquisition here and there, so you keep an eye on that. But I do, I do appreciate you bringing that point up because it's an important one. Yeah, the businesses that are so stable that not that you want to ignore them, but if they're so stable and so well run that if there were some sort of thesis changing event. Uh, there would be no way to avoid the news. Correct. It, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't be in the business section. It'd be on the front page. Absolutely. I mean, when McCormick made that RB Foods acquisition, that didn't sneak under the radar. I gave that one some due scrutiny. Um, 
but but for the most part, that's not standard operating procedure for a business like that. And and so that's again, it speaks to why we feel like having that that diversified portfolio is so important because it affords you the opportunity to expand your horizons and, and own a few more companies than than maybe you would normally consider. Because some of them out there, they just don't need to be followed so closely because they're so reliable. They have good track records behind. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. Shares of Shopify are down more than 70% this year. Is this former high flyer now a buy? And is Shopify's moat wide enough to keep Amazon at bay? Ryan Henderson and Jose Naharo join Ricky Mulvey for Bull vs. Bear. Welcome to Bear vs. Bull. We find a company, we pick some analysts, we flip a coin to see what side they'll take. Today, the company is Shopify. On the bull side, we have Jose Naharo. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Ricky. And on the bear case, we have Ryan Henderson. Welcome back, both of you. Thanks, Ricky. Happy to be here. Let's get it started with the bull case for Shopify. Jose, you have five minutes. Thank you for that, Ricky. And yeah, I mean, Shopify, I think, has numerous, numerous bullish points. So, first, I want to start off by saying that this is a company that provides numerous solutions. And to me, that makes it a sticky business. And it's something I like to call a toolbox investment. Uh, For example, it helps sellers with online, offline, inventory, logistics, finance, payments, advertisement, analytics, and the list goes on. So, by having solutions in numerous markets and it allows customers to stay a little bit more within the company. Uh, unfortunately, there are some competition, and some of those competitions might hit Shopify in the logistics market. But because they have this huge selection, it allows those customers to stay. Uh, the second kind of bullish point that I have for Shopify is the overall e-commerce market. Based on the chart from Statista, less than 20% of the United States' total retail sales comes from e-commerce at the moment. So there's plenty of share of market share for Shopify and just the overall e-commerce market to grow. When we take a closer look at that e-commerce market exposure, Shopify is actually number two with roughly 10.3% of total market share. So numerous things can happen. One, either the overall e-commerce market can share can grow as a whole in the United States, which will be bullish for Shopify, or Shopify itself can just increase its overall market share within the e-commerce market. Again, either scenario would be a win-win for Shopify. Uh, If we take a closer look, many people believe Shopify is just for an e-commerce market, but they also provide numerous offline markets. For example, they have adopted a point-of-sale hardware, uh, and this is one of the reasons they're seeing strong gross payment volume growth across the market. Uh, They also have other kind of payment solutions like Shopify Payment, Shopify Pay, and Shopify Markets. So even though they're mainly known for their e-commerce market, they also have numerous solutions for the offline market. Outside of the offline market, they do have numerous international expansions happening at the same time. For example, most recently they launched Shopify Payment and Shopify Shipment in France. This is actually going to be, I believe, one of the 18th country to kind of be with Shopify Payments. They also launched their Shopify Point System, which is their integrated payment in Italy in June and in Singapore in July. Now, Shopify Point on Sales system 
hardware is available in 13 countries. They're also kind of localizing subscription pricing to over 200 countries. And that's super important to do because what pricing might work in certain country might not work in another. So they're trying to make sure that they have everything set in line. Outside of just the ex international market exposure, they also have a very strong balance sheet. Right now, they roughly have roughly $7 billion in cash and short-term investments and about $900 million in long-term debt. Outside of that strong balance sheet, they do have good partnerships and they are in increasing their overall integrations. For example, most recently they did YouTube Shopify, which allows content creators to link their stores to their videos. And this opens up a huge opportunity for gross market volume. As a YouTuber creator myself, I only had one option available to me before, but with Shopify solutions, it's so much better. And this is something I personally am gonna start using pretty soon. They are also expanding into other markets like Twitter, other integrations like with Twitter and Spotify. And more importantly, they're also kind of entering into the crypto market. For example, they allow stores to connect to a crypto wallet and can have the store for only certain kind of communities that hold that certain NFT. Obviously, NFTs are uh, a very tricky subject to kind of talk about, but it is something that is seeing some form of exposure at the moment. So we can see Shopify is trying to stay on top of the trend and kind of grow the overall gross market volume and the overall transaction on their solutions. So uh, these are the numerous reasons that I believe Shopify can be a strong bullish point in the long term of things. That's the bull case from Jose Naharo. Jose, thank you so much for that. On the bear side, crossing over from the Chit Chat Money podcast, it's Ryan Henderson. Ryan, you have the bear case whenever you're ready. My bear case kind of sits around the idea that a lot of investors seem to think it's Shopify is well loved by a lot of investors, and I think a lot of people tend to think it's a very good business model. And there is some validity to that, where you spend tons of time and money up front to kind of build this software. It met a very critical need for a lot of people. And it doesn't require a giant sales force to to sell it, and so you know the once you get a certain level of adoption, there's a lot of profitability that can come with that. However, I don't think I, I think Shopify lacks sustainable competitive advantages that, we're, and we're beginning to see the repercussions of that. So first off, and this this is I kind of have two primary reasons, but the first one is that. Other content management systems, and for anyone that doesn't know, a content management system is is what Shopify is, but it's software that helps people create and manage content on a website. So think Wix, Squarespace, Weebly, companies like that, Shopify as well. Um, other content management systems are gaining market share while Shopify is losing share currently. So year to date, so from the start of this year to now, Shopify's market share among CMS providers has declined from 6.6% to 6.2%, while Wix and Squarespace, have, which are the two closest in terms of market share, have both gained. They've, they've gone from 2.9% to 3.4% in Wix's case, and 2.7% to 3% for Squarespace. Now, part of that is that the other two platforms lend themselves to other verticals, whereas e-commerce is, or Shopify is kind of hyper-focused on e-commerce. So, there's the the recent kind of reversion in or retraction in e-commerce spend has hurt Shopify disproportionately. However, those those companies still offer a lot of e-commerce capabilities. You can you can run a shop on Wix as well, and now you can easily plug into Amazon's fulfillment network, which leads into my second, I guess, bearish point is that Amazon did something that's really 
I think problematic for Shopify down the road. They they recently launched a feature called Buy with Prime, and so for anyone that doesn't know, Buy with Prime allows Amazon Prime members, which about half of Americans are Amazon Prime members, um, to access Prime's best-in-class shipping and fulfillment capabilities via stores outside of Amazon. So, uh, if you're a store owner um, or you're operating a store on Shopify, along with your other payment features that you can provide, you can also give Buy with Prime. And if you're a customer and you see Buy with Prime, you think, all right, I can get next day delivery, uh, free shipping, and free returns on select items. I, I've had that experience before. You know, I'm familiar with that. I trust that service. I'm going to go ahead and do that. And so, that is a giant chunk of Shopify's revenue where that's being cut out. If the payments and fulfillment side, which is, for reference, the merchant, there's two ways that Shopify generates revenue: subscriptions and merchant solutions. Merchant solutions is mostly accepting payments, shipping, and fulfillment, and then securing working capital. That's 72% of their revenue. If if Amazon is now interfering there and taking the payments and fulfillments. Even on Shopify's website, that's a giant chunk of revenue, and that's going to be a headwind for Shopify. So, if you've got Shopify today trades at about, I believe it's just just under ten times their trailing revenue. Um, there's a real chance that that revenue starts to run into some problems here um, if they're coming up against competition from Amazon, even on their own sites. So, it seems like a lot to pay. Uh, I know Shopify is trying to combat it with some of their own spend. They're, I think Shopify is trying to become Amazon quickly, and they're spending, I think, with $500 million in capital expenditures to kind of build out their fulfillment. Amazon spends $60 billion a year in CapEx. I don't think Shopify can compete on fulfillment with Amazon. And so uh, there, there's other ways that Shopify can generate revenue, but that's a giant chunk, giant chunk of their top line being cut out uh, for a company that's trading at a bit of a premium. I just think there's other places where uh, investors should be looking right now. Ryan Henderson, thank you for the bear case. Jose Naharo, thank you for the bull case. You can decide who made the better argument. We'll have a poll up at Motley Fool Money on Twitter. Very important that you go there and cast your ballot because the winner of today's Bear versus Bull is getting two tickets to Bitcoin the Musical. That's right, music by Seth Green starring Pitbull. It's three and a half hours long and it is in Miami. We will not pay for your travel there. Thank you so much. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.